Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Labor Know Your Rights podcast, brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. They can be found at www.nljsp.us. Hello, listeners. I'm happy to announce that we now have a toll-free number for our listeners to leave a comment or a question. Please dial one 855 625 8610. If you are outside of the U.S., Canada, or Caribbean, or if you want to make your recording using a voice recorder, please visit www.lifeonrecord.com slash podcast slash question mark EID equals E43B98. You can also visit the show notes to get the link there or our website. Do you know somebody that has a birthday, anniversary, or any other special occasion coming up, a great way to give them a wonderful gift is a meaningful audio keepsake of phoned in stories, memories, and well wishes from family and friends telling the recipient why they are so special. For more information, visit lifeonrecord.com. Great way to get a toll-free number so any of your friends and family can call in and leave these messages and you can get it recorded on to a keepsake for the person you're giving this to. I would like to apologize for the delay on this episode. Due to some medical problems, I was unable to get this out on time. We are going to cover history for a while as I feel it is important for us to know the history of the labor movement. The reason for this is that some of us who have been in the labor movement for a long time tend to forget the history. And for those that are new to the labor movement, the history is new, but very important so that we don't have to repeat the same history and regain the same grounds that we've already conquered. We're seeing an increase in the membership of the labor movement due to the millennials. And this is great. So today we're covering the city of Lowell. It was a town created by the textile mills as the utopia of what relationships could be like between employees and employers. The history of Lowell. Lowell was a small city created by several textile mill companies as a model city of industry. The good wages compared to other jobs open to farm girls or the hard free labor on the farm created what was known as Lowell Fever. Working for one of the mills also meant the young farm girls lived in one of the company's boarding houses, offering a safe living environment, a peek at the wider world, the chance to meet like-minded young people, attend after-work classes, reading rooms, lending libraries, and an occasional lecture. The city grew fast. In 1820, it was a small town. By 1836, it had nine textile mills and more than 550 boarding houses. A workroom typically had two male supervisors, 80 women workers, and two children as helpers. The companies did not want to be like the English companies. They believed the way to avoid that was a theory Alexander Hamilton believed in. They believed that by employing female workers who were not otherwise engaged in any but home crafts and whose ability for the first time to earn a salary would be welcomed by their families. The husbandman experiences a new source of profit and support from the increased industry of his wife and daughters. Hamilton advised, in general, women and children are rendered more useful and the latter more early useful. 
by manufacturing establishments than otherwise would be. We can see that in Hamilton's time, sexism was rampant and that companies truly felt they were really doing things to help out women. But the reality is that the women were paid an average of between $2.25 to $4 per week with men earning $4 to $12 with the mills deducting $1.25 per week from all, meaning some women cleared $1.25 per week or less than $0.02 cent an hour for 72 hours. The pay was better than most farm girls received at home. The mill boarding houses protected the reputation of the ladies over all the mill owners were genuine in their ideas of a working utopia. But Lowell had problems. Ventilation was a huge health issue, allowing cotton fibers to be breathed all day, stretching out a term meaning an increase in the number of machines a single worker was responsible for. Records showed employees being fired as early as 1826 for misconduct, impudence to overseers, circulating false stories, levity, and complaining about wages. In February 1834, the mill paper wrote an article about the mill closing. This was incorrect, but profits were down and a 25% wage reduction was in the works. This was lower than the 50% suggested by the Boston mill owners, but the employees might not have known this. When a supervisor learned that a female worker was holding a meeting, he demanded she stop, and if she did, he would give her an honorable discharge. She refused, and a little later, she was talking to another crowd. The supervisor, seeing this, fired her. Shortly after that, she was seen waving her bonnet outside the mill. The women in the mill, seeing this signal, 800 of them struck walking out Unfortunately, the strike did not last long, in part due to a lack of leadership by the strikers and a surplus of materials in the mill's storehouses. In 1836, the mills increased the boarding house fee by 25 cents a week. 2,000 employees walked off the job, returning home until the mills restored the 25 cent back in wages. This time, the mill owners were not prepared and did not have the inventory to wait out the strike. During this time, a new idea became popular among rural workers called collectives. The idea was to free men from the wage system. It was imagined that a group of about 1,500 people of both agricultural and industry units would form a working community to meet the needs of all. In 1840s, a group of these communities came into existence with about 8,000 people. Each. It was viewed as a serious alternative to the factory life. These communities tend to only last a few years. This led to a movement called Free Soil Homesteading. One of their slogans was, Vote Yourself a Farm, which led in 1844 to the introduction of several land-grant bills in Congress. Thus was created the Free Soil Party who thought, this would prevent the movement west of the plantation slavery model. In 1848, when the party broke up in 1854, the members joined with Northern Whig and anti-slavery Democrats to found the Republican Party. Each year there were new tensions, new workers' resentments, as there was no respected structure for the hearing of grievances 
are constructive compromises between employees and management. The next major labor issue was the brutal work schedule. Every season brought larger petitions to the Massachusetts State Legislature demanding relief from the crushing work schedule of textile mills and other factories. Rallying around the 10-hour day, the labor movement grew in size and determination. In 1844, Sarah Bagley and dozens of other women met at the Lowell Lecture Space named the Anti-Slavery Hall to create the Lowell Female Labor Reform Association, or LFLRA. Bagley was later attacked by the Lowell paper, The Offering. It struggled on for a while, but closed shortly after, ending the offering. Finally, the courts were addressed by the movement. In 1806, a case in Philadelphia when eight bootmakers were indicted for having formed a combination and for conspiracy. At trial, the prosecution asserted that the bootmakers belonged to an organization that conspired to demand higher wages and to injure their employer's business by withholding their labor. Also, they were accused of threatening other shoemakers who would fill their jobs of agreeing to not work for an employer whose hiring or wage practices violated their group's rules. The bootmakers were acting like a labor union. The defense arguments were that the wage increase demands were not out of line with rates paid elsewhere. The society had existed for 15 years, and most employers accepted the society as a group whose aim was the betterment of shoemakers' lives. Defense also argued that the employers had conspired by agreeing on mutual protection and the setting of prices. The bootmakers failed to overcome the court's bias against labor combinations, setting a precedent in law for several decades. The courts revisited the issue again in 1842. The case was Commonwealth v. Hunt, which involved a bootmaker, Jeremiah Horn, a member of the Boston Society of Bootmakers, who had done some extra work for his employer, Isaac Waite, without pay. This went against the society's rules, and Horn was fined $1. When he refused to pay the fine, his fellow workers threatened to walk off the job unless Waite fired Horn. Waite, wanting to avoid trouble with his workers, offered to pay Horn's fine, but Horn refused. Waite had no choice but to dismiss him to keep the peace with the other bootmakers. Horn denounced the society in explicit terms. So irritating the members, they insisted he pay a fine of an additional $6 for slandering the group. Horn filed a complaint with the district attorney who charged John Hunt, the president of the bootmakers, with criminal conspiracy. This case was lost but was appealed to the state Supreme Court. The judge overturned the decision stating that a combination would have to have as its goal to accomplish some criminal act or unlawful purpose. This ruling gave the labor movement a legal leg to stand on. In 1845, Sarah Bagley and others held a meeting at Lowell Town Hall with over 1,000 Lowell workers attending. They submitted a petition with several thousand names of Lowell operatives. It was reportedly 130 feet long to the Massachusetts State Legislature demanding the 10-hour day. The petition 
did no good as the legislature deemed that it was not up to the state to tell industrialists how to run their businesses. In fact, they did nothing on this issue until 1874. By the late 1850s, Lowell's Golden Age had ended. This was brought on by two factors. First, the economy had slowed down, creating far less demand for textiles. And secondly, the industry had moved to hiring immigrants as they could pay them less. Working conditions did not have to be improved, and housing could be just a form of a camp versus boarding houses. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate the time it takes to listen to these. Please share this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone that you know that's in a union or is interested in becoming a member of a union. We can be reached at www.laborknowyourrights.com, all one word. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can also reach us at laborknowyourrights at gmail.com. Any suggestions on future episodes, questions, ideas, or just you want to say hi or thank you, feel free to contact us there. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. <music>